Hello and welcome to another episode of Finding Your Atom. This is the episode six and we have with us a very special guest, Derek Collier. So I'm here with Amrita Sen and like in our series, we are discussing what makes us special. How do you find our atomic particulars that makes us special in terms of humanity? How we find our humanity and as well how we can actually cross bridge the different atomic parts of the human nature. And uh, this implies a lot of things from finding our dots to finding our inner atom identifier, the atom particles, a lot of subjects that mix physics, psychology, and ideas and philosophy. So we've been very focused in trying to identify these different things, and especially profiling people that we deeply admire, and we are very excited. So Amrita today will be uh, co-hosting this special uh, episode and they will go in there. I'm just going to read a bit about our special guest. So uh, Dirk Collier is a fascinating personality. He's an author, lecturer, and expert in Asian and Indian culture. His passion for Asian culture and history has aroused as a result of his travels through the continent, predominantly in China and India. And apart from the books, he has also written articles for various journals on occasional lectures on universities and cultural institutions. He's a professional lawyer um, and a businessman but ser and serves on the board of general, uh, several organizations. But his background is as well world, world known as an author of multiple books. He published The Emperor's Writings, a historical novel on the life and times of Akbar the Great, which you're going to be talking today. Um, in 2013 came, as you say, Paths to Peace, Religion, Ethics and Tolerance in a Globalizing World, which are more important than ever today. Um, and he has a foreword by His Excellency Armand van Rompuy, honorary, honorary President of the European Council. And in 2015, he published the great a non-fiction chronicle of one of the greatest dynasties in world history, the Mughal. From its founder Babur to Babahur, Babadur, Sa Zafar, the last of the clan. So we can go for a lot of different things. And of course, we're going to put the bio for people listening to us. But I urge people to buy the books and read the books because there's a lot of fascinating things about history that are more important than ever today. So I'll pass the word to Amrita because she'll be the, the first host. And I'll be, of course, provoking with this uh, wonderful journey that you're going to have today. Well, I'll tell you how I found Dirk. Um, I was in India in a hotel in Calcutta and uh, visiting my grandfather. And there was, an, there was a person sitting next to us who started talking about different uh, concepts of peace and different concepts of humanity. And I asked him, I said, where did you get these quotes? He said, well, I, I've been reading this book called The Emperor's Writings, his notes to... Of, of Akbar the Great. I said, Akbar wrote these, these sayings? He said, no, the author wrote it as if Akbar would have written it. And that I thought was interesting in and of itself is the author is imagining what this historical figure would have written. And the prose was so beautiful is it's as if Akbar himself wrote these notes to his son. So he said, read the book went back home, came back to LA, read the book. And then I said, you know what? Let me give it a shot. Maybe this is a TV show. Maybe it's something I can produce. Uh, I reached out to the author 
thinking that no one would actually respond. And here, here he is three years later. Um, three years later, I would like to say that I'm proud to say Dirk is a friend. He and I are working on a television concept related to an amalgamation of his books. And we've gotten the attention of very, very prominent showrunners to do this. Um, and since that time, he's published two more books since the time I met him. I read a second book. And the thing I think the audience should really try to try to appreciate here is the fact that most people who've written about Mughal history, which is a Game of Thrones period in Indian history, are Indian in descent. There's a few exceptions, but most people who have written about this time period in India are Indian. What I'd, I'd like Dirk to explain what got him from Europe with the curiosity that he went into India and then all of a sudden he's this, in my view, he's an expert. He's an absolute expert in this category. So I'd like us to hear about what compelled him what compelled him to get to this point? Well, uh, as you've explained, I'm, I'm a Belgian. My uh, native language is Dutch, Southern Dutch, uh, to be precise. Uh, I'm a lawyer by training and, uh, and I have an executive MBA and I worked for the better part of my life for Johnson & Johnson. And apart from uh, working for a living and running marathons when I was a bit younger, um, I have, throughout my life, been absolutely obsessed with books. I have thousands and thousands of books, and I've, uh, I'm proud to say that I read many of them. Um, and so, yeah, that's uh, what my life was about. And when I, uh, when I talk about books, history in particular fascinates me. And there was one particular point about history and, uh, and about the lives of, of people, very often uh, bad people that I came across. Um, one, one aspect that fascinated and horrifies me is fanaticism. Uh, there is a French uh, philosopher that once has said that nothing is more dangerous than an idea, especially if you have only one. And uh, History abounds with examples of people who are, could have lived just ordinary lives, uh, perfectly ordinary, valuable lives, but instead they became monsters for some reason. And one guy that I've uh, read about was, uh, for instance, Heinrich Himmler, the boss of uh, the SS. And uh, a few, many people know that he has the blood of many millions of people on his hands, but few people know that when he was uh, an adolescent, he was a church-going, honest-to-God person, uh, extremely devout and so on. Very few people know that he was extremely meticulous in the way he behaved, even when he was butchering people. Uh, if, he, if he took a pencil from his office, uh, the cost of that pencil needed to be deducted from his salary. If he went to visit his mother, the gasoline price for the detour had to be deducted from his salary. So this is a guy that could have been a notary public or a pharmacist or whatever, a mild-mannered, meticulous, scrupulous person, and he became a butcher. 
And why was that? Because his mind got poisoned about with a lot of idiotic things about Aryans and blue eyes and the the fight of uh, good blood against bad blood and so on. And the guy became convinced that he had to play a role in eradicating what he thought was degenerate blood and, and so on and so forth. So um, I thought to myself when I was about 35 years uh, old, which unfortunately is a few centuries ago, that some day later in life, I would start writing a book and it would be a, um, a novel about fanaticism. And I had this vague idea that I would write a book about European history, about some guy working for the Spanish Inquisition and chasing uh, crypto Jews and crypto Muslims and, and torturing them. And then discovering that even if just supposing that his Catholic ideas were true, that what he did was actually wrong because those human beings, even if they were mistaken in their Muslim or Jewish belief, uh, were people like he was and that, uh, okay. So my, my story was going to be about uh, a fanaticist and I was going to write it uh, around age uh, 60. And then uh, when I was uh, in my mid forties, uh, my work for J&J took me to uh, Asia. Uh, dozens of times I've been to China and India and as is my habit, I always came back with truckloads of books, uh, which I started reading. And uh, the more I read about Asian history and philosophy, the more fascinated I, I got. So I, I discovered, for instance, that a lot of thought that I had been uh, told the Aristotle and Plato and so on had discovered that they had been discovered as well. And often many hundreds of years ago, before, before Aristotle, by Indians, by Chinese, and so on. So the, the value of, uh, of that philosophy struck me. And also the, uh, the uh, maturity of, of thought. So I could give many examples, but in the uh, Arta Shastra, for instance, a book about how to run a country uh, written many, many centuries before, uh, before the common era, uh, how how uh, thought how well thought through it was. So I thought to myself, wouldn't it be interesting that uh, my novel would would in some way, shape, or form have to do something with with Asia and with India? And I thought to myself, yeah, well, um, the uh, Portuguese actually had. Uh, a possession in India, Goa, not, not a, a sizable chunk of India, but nevertheless larger than many a European country, which they owned, uh, which they were kicked out of after uh, India's independence only, so they, which they, they ran. And I started, uh, I, uh, I don't speak Portuguese, but I, I can actually read it quite well. And uh, I started documenting myself and I discovered to my joy that the Portuguese had a very active inquisition in Goa. So I, I thought to myself, my, my inquisitor will not be stationed in Europe, but he will be stationed in, uh, in India and he can have Indian victims so I can weave in all these insights of, uh, of Indian philosophy and of the tolerance and so on. And, and it's gonna be great. Because actually, uh, it's not because you're here and Rita, but 
there is a, a huge difference between the concept of what I would call Western uh, religions, uh, Christianity, uh, Islam, and to a lesser extent, Judaism, they're obsessed with orthodoxy. So that what they actually say is there is only one God, and he's the boss, and he will punish all the evil and, and reward all the good, and you better do what he says. Uh, and if you don't do what he says according to this book and not the other guy's book, you will be punished for all eternity. So a, a, a huge accent on orthodoxy. Whereas uh, Indian philosophy, if you read about it, uh, basically has no, uh, no creed that you have actually have to believe in. Indian philosophy is about how to become a, a better, more mature person so that in the end you will be freed and you can reunite yourself. But in the end, according to Indian philosophy, everything is destined to reunite itself with its divine origin. And every religion is just a path on the same mountain. So in, in that sense, a true, a true Hindu is, a, is by definition a person respectful of other traditions uh, and very open-minded. And that was something that I wanted to put in that, in that book. So I started reading about Goan history and then to my... I was annoyed to see that, uh, yeah, very important in that history was that the great Mughal at that time, a few, maybe 100, 150 miles of, uh, beyond the borders of Goa, had invited Jesuit priests to his court, uh, Sunni Muslim, but he had invited Jesuit priests to his court and allowed them to build a chapel and uh, started praying in that chapel. Uh, uh, causing these, these fathers to believe that he would convert to Catholicism, but then they were very sad to see that he also built Hindu shrines in his palace and that he built uh, Zoroastrian fires and, and what have you, and was respectful of, of each and every religion. So reluctantly, I started reading up about this uh, man. And in the end, I thought, I'm going to give up the entire story and I'm going to just... Um, try to get into the mind of this man. And you have many, It's you call it the original Amrita, and uh, that's very flattering, but, but it's in fact not, not a novel concept at all. Like for instance, uh, uh, I Claudius, Robert Graves' I Claudius is actually Claudius uh, on the brink of death uh, explaining his story. If you have uh, Marguerite Yusena's uh, memoirs of Hadrian about Hadrian, the Roman emperor, that's exactly the same. It's him writing a very lengthy letter to one of his successors, explaining to him how his life went and uh, how he actually should go about uh, managing, at that time, the most powerful empire on the face of the globe and how he went about it and what his mistakes were and so on. So what I did was, uh, uh, I uh, when I read about this Akbar, what I knew is that, uh, unfortunately, he had only three sons. Two of them died uh, from alcoholism uh, before him. He had just one son left, also an alcoholic. And that guy actually uh, rebelled against him. And in the end, he managed to patch up things and get reconciled with his son. But the son was really his rival, a bitter rival. And that, that really must have been terrible for him. But when he was dead, when Akbar was dead, 
it turned out that uh, his son was extremely respectful of uh, of what his father had done. And if you read uh, Jahangir, Jahangir was his son and successor, Jahangir's memoirs, it's full of quotes about my revered father here and my revered father there. And also Jahangir, for instance, when it came to religion, had a statement, just like in my father's empire, there is room for every every denomination and every religion. Uh, it's just like in the spacious circles of God's mercy, there is room for everything. That type of thing, that type of insight was at that time, it's even right now, not, not, a, not an obvious insight, but at that time, if you compare it to Europe, we were fighting like hell, Protestants against Catholics. There were Pyres, there were uh, torture chambers, and, and this guy actually created the first secular states, uh, as far as I know, or one of the first secular states on the face of the globe. Yeah, well, giving people some context, Dirk, so it is uh, the year around 1556 that Akbar came power. His father, his grandfather was Babur, who was yeah. a uh, Uzbek. Right. Somehow he actually was kicked out of Central Asia by the Uzbeks. No. Okay, so he was not Uzbek. He was. Uh, no. He was a Turk, a Central Asian Turk, a Chagatai Turk, to be so He had lots of ups and downs in his career. Came to India to essentially because he has nowhere else to go. Then his son Humayun, um, the, uh, Akbar's father. Uh, started expanding the kingdom and died, literally died. Uh, well, he got kicked out of his kingdom by, uh, by one of his rivals and then spent uh, the better part of uh, a decade in exile and came back to India with Persian help after this rival of his had died. And then he died in a stupid accident. He died uh, in an accident. Akbar, so was Akbar was 13 years of age when right. he and he uh, inherited the throne of his father. And when he inherited that throne, you should know that he was there at the head of an invading ar Muslim army, uh, Central Asian, Turkish-speaking army, uh, and his entire government was uh, Muslims, either Persians or Central Asians. And that's it. When he, when he was older, more than half of his government was Hindu. He had married uh, by that time uh, a Hindu princess of a very powerful Rajput clan, which actually caused him to become much more mighty because he was not the first Muslim to, to marry a Hindu right. princess. But Hindu princesses who married Muslim kings were supposed to be turned Muslim and the entire family was, this, uh, was supposed to convert. And that he did not do. So he allowed his family to remain Hindu. And all of a sudden, you had Hindus commanding Muslim troops and joined armies of yeah. Hindus and Muslims. And that was the backbone of what at that time was the most powerful yeah. uh, empire on the face of the globe, because he was actually at that time boss of, give or take a few percent, 20 percent of, uh, of the world's population. Right. And so at that time, uh, countries that we in Europe considered to be mighty countries uh, uh, paled into insignificance. I mean, uh, one of Akbar's wives uh, was uh, actually a trader 
and was supposed to be personally more wealthy than the entire uh, treasury of Spain, for instance. So, so we should realize uh, we Europeans, but many many people throughout the world have the have a preconceived idea that Europe was at that time so so no. far, but it was not. That's it's only because of of. Uh, Uh, military technology that the Europeans in the end uh, gained for a brief period of time predominance in the world. But at yes. the time of Akbar, he was actually the mightiest and the richest, yes. the richest man in the world. Okay, so so Dirk, Akbar, 13 years old, right? Yeah. He has um, lots of enemies. He has a he has a basic infrastructure of of government, as you pointed out, and he has a very unique military leader as his mentor, Baram Khan, right? Yeah. 13-year-old Akbar, don't, he doesn't know it yet, but he's about to change the concept of, of, an egal of basically a, a cohesive society at that time entirely. One where it's a, he's about to change the concept of a multi-religious society, which is ahead yeah. for him. This is a very unique person. Yeah. He did okay. it also to serve himself. I, I, should, I should be honest and point that out to you that he, he, he was so tolerant because he was such an imperialist and he understood much more than his successors did that it was actually by creating India, a united India, mm -hmm. he could make it powerful. Right. As long as he was there as an invading a uh, foreigner suppressing the local people, he was not going to make it. And so the first thing he did when he was still around 20 years old was to suppress any taxation on non-Muslims. That's right. That's right. First of all, there was a tax on, 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 uh, on religious services other than Muslim. He abolished that tax. And then secondly, there was a tax, the so-called jizya, uh, so-called a protection tax for uh, non-Muslims uh, that needed to be paid, which he abolished too, uh, endangering his own throne because he had a lot of internal opposition. But nevertheless, he pushed it through. And uh, at the end of, uh, well, he uh, had to, to reckon with uh, uprisings and so on, but in the end, he always prevailed. And in the end, he was untouchable. And what he actually created was what he what he said he would do. Uh, he what, he no longer made any kind of distinction between any of his subjects on the basis of their religion. He only intervened in a few uh, items which he thought was were not correct. Like for instance, um, it is said, and I don't know to what extent he was able to push it through, but he was against circumcision, in the sense that. Uh, 12-year-olds in, uh, in the Muslim culture and uh, new, newly born. Well, he was against that. He said, you know, if you want to cut off something, do it when you're an adult and you decide for yourself. It was also very customary, especially among Hindus, that uh, children, newborn children, were married to each other. So families, well-to-do families decided, you got a daughter, I got a son. So uh, they're both six months old, so they're married now. And he made, uh, um, he said, no, no, marriage is very important. 
decision to make. So you need to be an adult, which uh, in his time was 14 years old. You need to be 14 years old and you need to decide for yourself. So concepts that with the wisdom of hindsight are quite modern. And those were uh, the few uh, exceptions where we actually intervened in, in religious affairs and said, you know, this custom that you have here, burning widows, for instance, was, was uh, forbidden. All these kinds of things that he considered to be, yeah, not illuminated by the torch of reason. He, he once said when he organized his religious debate, uh, uh, when the fathers, uh, the, the Jesuits wanted to convince him or his own uh, Muslim theologists, I'm sorry, but I do not wish to take a single step on the path of uh, belief unless that step is uh, enlightened by the torch of reason. So in that sense, he was an extremely modern person. Even, even in this day and age, it's not that customary to find that kind of uh, mentality. And yeah, your question was, how this, did it come about that uh, it was lost? Well, he was, his successor was not so interested as he was in, in uh, religious matters, but he, he basically thought, you know, my father is right and there is no God anyway, he was most, most certainly an atheist. But then later on, the, the, the son of Jahangir and moreover the grandson of Jahangir were very staunchly educated Sunni Muslims who really revert to creating dual society. And that was also the beginning of the end of uh, the Mughal Empire because in the end it, it, it ruined uh, the cohesion. Although the uh, the uh, ideal of of uh, of a united India has never died in itself, but it's it's never been realized, uh, or, or only in a, in a patchy way it's been realized. So, Dirk, it's clear that we, you, and many, I would still call you a historian, even though you don't call yourself a historian. We understood we understand better what what created these historical milestones? What he, the, the result of this pro-cohesion um, advocacy, if you will. What I think we, we should try to do is understand that thoughts create history, but what creates the thought, right? The thought of a 13 year old boy who evolves into this you know, almost before many, many centuries before the enlightenment is in, is in full effect in Europe. What created the thought? Was the thought an amalgamation of many influences coming from Persia and Europe and other parts of the world? Or are there times where the thought is just divined within a person? I think it makes sense for us to explore that is what creates these ideas? Are ideas just simply a a happenstance of what is happening anyway around that. Around well, this is as good as mine, but I, I would, I think personally that it has to do with uh, um, most people um, like to be comfortably away from problems. And so for instance, when it comes to cuisine, I don't know, uh, but you have a number of people who will try 
anything and everything wherever they are and if it's a snake or a cricket or whatever they want to taste it because I've, they've never eaten a spider and you know and over here they actually serve it so they have they're very open-minded and they want to discover everything for themselves most people however uh sooner or later stick to stuff they know and the great danger of any ideology um, it's not only religion, but any ideology is that <clears throat> it actually gives you the false message that you no longer have to think for yourself. All the answers are here in this book. So uh, why don't you just do what and, and then everything goes well. And that's what that's how fanaticism uh, arises. It's uh, there's this guy, Jarosinski had uh, this uh, aphorism defining ideology. It's the mistaken belief that your beliefs are neither beliefs nor mistaken. So you actually have a set of rules, which you probably misunderstood yourself, but you know, this is the book to live by, and that is going to simplify my life. The only thing that we know from history is that whenever you do it, uh, it gets worse and worse. In Christianity, you have Catholics and all kinds of Protestant denominations killing each other. If you go to my youth, uh, when the Soviet Union still existed, you had Trotskyists, you had uh, Stalinists, you had Maoists, you had all kinds of people saying, you know, communism is true. Communism is wrong. Uh, current Islam, uh, the Shias are not real Muslims. It's only us that are the real Muslims. All th this is a tendency that is inside every person's head because every person's head wants simple answers. And the problem is that uh, the problem, but also the beauty of life is that, okay, there is a truth, obviously, but truth is, is a multifaceted thing. And the more open you are to whatever meaningful person uh, has to say to you, the more rich your life becomes and the more the more constructive you can be. So is it safe to say that most human beings are walking ideologies? And even in our day, you know, in modern business, you have most people I know are walking ideologies of some specific path they've chosen, right? In the case of Akbar, would you say he's a mutation of humanity? Would he just is one of those ants that went off? Oh, it existed all along. Like, for instance, if you take uh, as an example, not that uh, Akbar was not a saint and the guy that I'm about to mention was not a saint either, but Deng Xiaoping, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, who suffered tremendously in the uh, cultural revolution under Mao. So it was thrown in jail or, or banned twice, uh, had a son handicapped for life in incidents with uh, revolutionary guards and so on, the guy was a pragmatist. And so he had these slogans about uh, finding the truth from facts. And the opposite was uh, the Red Guards was, uh, we, we no longer need any, any books anymore. We've got the thought of Chairman Mao and whatever we do needs to be in conformity with Chairman Mao, even if Chairman Mao had not thought about the issue at. So it's the, the tendency to become mentally lazy instead of saying, okay, I need to discover 
the truth from facts. I need to quote Deng Xiaoping. I need to cross the river, uh, trying to find the stones. You know, step one step at a time. Pragmatism, as such, is a more difficult choice, but in the end, it always leads to more, uh, yeah, honest kinds of. Uh, and that is probably also the appeal of uh, of true democracy that it invites people to disagree. Yeah. That honest people can actually find some truth in the ideology of others. But as soon as as you say, okay, this I'm a socialist and this guy is a liberal, so therefore your your mind is closed. It's Minds of, uh, are sometimes uh, compared to parachutes. They work better when they're open. So I have one question. Um, so you've been researching these big characters, bigger than life, and these personalities. And, um, and you made a couple of parallels in history. And I think, like you just said, one of the conclusions was kind of most of these kind of... Uh, obsessions to simplify things and sometimes laziness create kind of this kind of monster states like you mentioned with Himmler that from an accounting perspective became a monster that actually was responsible for probably one of the worst times in the history of humanity and then you talk about India where actually in this case uh, we had a personality that uh, actually in one end created something good because he, he saw that putting people together and, and putting the religion aside but making them work works pretty well so in these different parts of history, where would be the patterns that you, let's say, if you look at the concept of this podcast that is about finding your atom, so from the different personalities that you analyze and research in history, is there any patterns that you want to show, uh, share with us, both with the best, what makes the best of these personalities and the worst? Because I think that's normally what happened, even what is happening right now in the present days with Russia. Um, we have a big challenge that is normally it's one person that actually can create uh, most of times or wonderful times. I would like to see if you have any patterns that you find that you found in your research. I, I don't know about uh, this atom thing, but what I, what I believe is that true greatness arises when you are great enough to um, see yourself, not just as a bundle of entitlements, but also of duties. Uh, true great people actually say uh, what is my purpose in life it's not to become wealthy or to become uh, but I have a task to fulfill and uh, for instance uh, yeah, many many books about political philosophy speak about the duties of a, of uh, a monarch and it's actually uh, you're not a monarch for your own right you're a monarch to uh, serve the people, uh, to serve the country that you are uh, privileged to lead. And in that sense, uh, I have already said and, and admitted that Akbar was by no means a saint. He actually was a, an imperialist and he wanted to uh, make his empire bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, if uh, countries that were adjacent uh, didn't agree to join him, he would just overrun them. So that, that, in that sense, he was, he was not uh, such a great person, but he at least understood be a successful monarch, not only by being a successful military guy, but also by uh, ruling over a country truthfully, justly, 
and actually uh, try to make, uh, to create the happiness of the people that he ruled. So looking after the, uh, the creation of wealth, for instance, his uh, grandson, uh, Shah Jahan, usually seen as the pinnacle of Mughal history, actually robbed his own country blind. I mean, I mean he, he created thrones and, and monuments that were so expensive at the, at the expense of the ordinary people. A guy like Akbar tried not to overtax people, tried to uh, make sure that, that the country was wealthy in itself. And a wealthy country with happy, happy people tends to be a powerful country. That, that in itself, serving a, a greater purpose is, I think, what is necessary if you want to find an atom. If the atom is just you, then, then your life is never going to be a great life. But I think I think what we're trying to understand are these just patterns in history, or is this a person that's such again such a mutation in thought, right? Um, when you look at what the world, you know, the the wars, the the conflicts that are going on today, a lot of people would argue that they're just repeats of patterns. I think what you found, Dirk and Akbar, is that it went off a, a path that the world was already on, right? It, it mutated to something that the world had not seen before. And it really behooves us to understand why those mutations happened so we can create a better- but He was not the first illuminated guy. You should realize that, for instance, when he was young, Sikhism uh, arose as, as a kind of merger between uh, Islam and, and Hinduism, you realize that the predominant denomination of, uh, of uh, Muslim saints were uh, Sufi, Sufis uh, actually open to everyone who have readily took on Hindu disciples and so on. So it, it was not that special. The only thing that was special about him was that he actually recognized that to be more valuable yes. than called righteousness of, of uh, belonging to the true faith. And his contacts with Hindus, he, for instance, uh, he even had uh, an, an old uh, Brahmin priest who was uh, forbidden to enter his, his palace, not by Akbar, but by the priest himself, because it was... It was not a, a suitable place for a Brahmin priest. He was hoisted up in a in a in a net of of ropes, to, hoisted up to the window to teach Akbar what he was uh, what he was wanting to know about Hinduism and so on. So the fact that he had, was open-minded, he was not the first open-minded, and fortunately also not the last open-minded person. The face of the, the 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 fortunate thing was that he was an open-minded person who was powerful. And you have similar periods, for instance, if you take the Roman Empire, uh, and I refer to the memoirs of Hadrian, there is this sequence of strong emperors in, in uh, just a brief moment in time in the Roman Empire, Trajan, Hadrian, uh, Marcus Aurelius, Antoninus Pius, all these guys were extremely powerful, and yet they submitted themselves to the greater good. So the, uh, the Roman law said that the, the, the duty of the law is to give 
every person his or her own doom. And so the, uh, the remit of an emperor is to make sure that that actually happens. And if you are that kind of person, all of a sudden you create uh, a, a period in, in Roman history that was unequaled. But it was uh, the predecessors of these guys and unfortunately the successes of these guys were, were monsters. So that, that's, that's been the discovery of, uh, of uh, Montesquieu and others and, and, and of, of democracy in general. You never should allow as a country to, uh, to have the, uh, your own uh, fate to be determined by a single individual because it may uh, every once in a while be the wrong individual. Yeah. But it happened to Germany like it's happening to Russia currently. Yes. A single individual becomes too powerful and there is no checks and balances, then a country is on a very slippery slope. If you have an all-powerful person who is a saint, then uh, the country will do well. But if the person is for some way, uh, for some reason deranged or uh, a balance of power is needed if you want, uh, if you want the society to prosper and if, if you want the world to be safe. And you had in, uh, in Akbar an open-minded person <laughs> who had a platform and who had access to ideas. Yeah. Right? So and it was look for these ideas because yeah. you're, currently everyone has access to ideas. Right. It doesn't mean that the world is full of illuminated people. Right. Well, now that's the thing. So in the, in the holy, in the triangle, right? Open-minded person, access to ideas, platform. Now what you have in our society is you do have access to ideas, or you didn't potentially in, the, in those days. Um, but you don't have open-minded people and and the people that are open-minded may not have the platform to speak about their ideas you know so you have to have i mean being born into an imperialistic family is a platform right what you do has consequence whether it's good or bad um because there are tons of open-minded people walking around but they have no vehicle right in in the case of akbar you had this i would say this perfect storm of somebody who had access people coming in and out of that region because it's it was so strategically geopolitically located right europe could get to it different parts of the world could get to it there's a base of money there's a base of military strength and then all of a sudden this person just says you know i this makes sense um and now looking at it from that point of view it doesn't surprise me at all that he became Akbar the Great, it doesn't surprise me at all that at that time, India became the richest country in the world. But, but then, if you look at the world now, I'm sorry. Go then, but then the opposite happened, which <clears throat> equally fascinates you. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. It, but if I think about the world right now, um, you know that uh, uh, Churchill once said, you know, uh, parliamentary democracy is the worst system after you've tried everything else. Uh, you know, everything else is worse then, but our own system is no God good either. If you currently look at the, uh, you could say it's in a tongue-in-cheek way, but parla parliamentary democracy in itself was the least bad system that the planet could have. And we felt very confident about it. And yet we've witnessed in the United States a very disturbing uh, moments uh, we uh, have witnessed in Europe 
the uh, mess that people have made with Brexit and uh, the mess with the Catalonian question and so on and so forth. And what, what is there in every one of these incidents, it's actually uh, the non-respect for truth. Uh, uh, fake news and so on is really the... Uh, now, you've heard about Montesquieu, so the parliamentary the democracy is based on the fact that powers need to be, uh, there need to be counterbalancing powers. Right? So the separation of powers is, is necessary for any democracy to be able to survive itself because, you know, no single power is strong enough. So they made the distinction between the executive powers, the uh, judiciary powers and the legislative powers and the, the Separation of these three to Montesquieu was essential. Well, I would believe that if you were to bring Montesquieu back to life and ask his opinion about our current, what is currently wrong with us, is that people are actually allowed to present out and out blatant lies as an expression of an opinion. If I tell you that the sun gives no light, that is not my constitutional right to tell you. If you are a blind person and I'm telling you that the sun, that there is no such thing as light, then I'm lying. And that's not my constitutional right. So I think if we are to construct the, the uh, democracies of the 21st century, truthfulness, uh, reliability of information is, is, is paramount. Because only then uh, uh, the population is able to, to make up its own mind or to actually define better what the issues are. Uh, I also think that Montesquieu would say what we need to do is to reduce the difference between, our, to reduce um, the task of politics to what is actually decisions. Um, decisions as opposed to conclusions. If you and I have an argument, we have a company together and we have an argument about what should we do with the copying machine? Should we lease it? Should we rent it? Should we buy it? And so on. We can, we can draw up a few Excel sheets and we will come to a conclusion. You know, it's, it's just a matter of if you, God forbid, uh, have a, a, an appendix problem, uh, it's, it's actually a a technical thing for a surgeon to solve. It would not be good even if I were elected to deliver you from your appendix because I'm not a medical doctor. So leaving things that are technical to people who actually know something about it and reducing the role of politics to actual societal decisions and decisions based on objective, true information, not on blatant lies like Brexit was, not on blatant lies like uh, President Trump was telling, not on blatant lies like the Russian public is told currently. That, that in my opinion, is... Uh, and the search for truth, I think, is the, uh, the cornerstone of, uh, of what we need to do in the 21st century when information uh, is, uh, is, is going around the globe at a speed of light, but disinformation and lies as well. So actually making sure uh, that uh, non-truthfulness is, is in some way sanctioned, I think is essential. And otherwise we are, we are in dire straits, I think. You know? Well, it's, it's telling people, it's understanding what is really happening. Yeah. 
know, what is actually happening. Um, Dennis, is, uh, Dennis has many companies that are focused on that. Is trying to figure out what is actually happening versus what uh, yeah. the mythology of what's happening. Yeah, and it's a very big, I think it's one of the biggest challenges of our society. Um, so one question I would like to ask, ask get, coming back to your research, and we touched that, but we didn't go on this part, is, okay, definitely there are trends in history that keep repeating each other. And these trends normally, so for instance, one of the things me and Amrita have been discussing in this series is really personalities that change the world. And uh, until now, we actually mostly, uh, probably the exception of Buddha, spoke with not the most positive ones. And even today, we spoke about some of them. They're very radical for good and for bad. So from your research, uh, coming back to this experience, because I think I like to look at the patterns, especially to avoid making the same mistakes, and as well to see if we can actually learn with this. So for instance, if you look at uh, Mughal legacy, uh, he had the world famous Taj Mahal, that was probably the, the biggest case of his um, dynasty and his work. Um, that's but Shastra. as well... That, that's uh, oh. Akbar's grandson, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so I think uh, from this kind of uh, um, comprehensive uh, different things that happened during these personalities, and for us, you mentioned a couple of historic personalities. So for now, for people listening to us, and, uh, and we always try to go to the identity, to what makes humanity, because I think at the moment we are in a bridge of uh, a lot of things happening. There's the technology, you mentioned Brexit and all the different areas of fake news that can actually create parallel narratives. And for instance, Imla was the narrative of one book, <laughs> the book of Hitler, which was the book as well that created the Second World War and one of the worst periods in history. So I think you mentioned as well the Portuguese in Goa, where actually I, I had the privilege to go there, and then Portuguese. So for me, it was actually quite strange that in a place in India, suddenly you have the, the Portuguese churches that are like being in Portugal, and you have all these different contradictions. But you have as well, for instance, I discovered that the, the, the former dictator of Portugal, after uh, before he actually let uh, Goa go to, to India, wanted to, he actually never actually was a kind of a, kind of at least a ruthless dictator, but he wanted actually to do something. He gave some orders that thankfully the, the council of Goa didn't do it to actually kill a lot of people in Goa, which thankfully didn't happen. I don't know as well, all of these things sometimes in history, there's a, a, a different interpretations, but definitely in history is made by people that follow a book for radicals. Sometimes it's an inspirational book of someone that is a creator that comes with history like Buddha that can actually make a better narrative, let's put it that way. Sometimes it's a more cruel or more radical narrative. And this happens in all histories if you go to the history of humanity. But we didn't seem to learn much because in history it's more a capacity of the person to aggregate a couple of things around this person and then create a narrative than actually necessary because of history or society being more advanced. For instance, if you look at, there's a famous book um, actually from one of the biggest historians that wrote about um, actually Vasari that wrote, wrote about uh, Leonardo da Vinci and, and uh, Michelangelo. And he wrote that history, there's kind of three, three kind of moments when ideas and uh, creativity and money work together. Then the second part is when military power and money work together that normally create very um, terrible moments in history. So I would like to touch from your research in particular. Okay, so 
we are in the 21st century on the verge of the most advanced technological uh, history of a moment in history. And we have still all these kind of very, very crazy uh, issues going on. So what would be your points on this? Uh, I don't know. Um, I was once uh, uh, in a seminar on, uh, on modern technology for one of the uh, boards that I'm on. <clears throat> And uh, uh, a politician, a Belgian politician, was present. Uh, and one of the questions was, what would uh, the Roman emperors have done with the technology that we currently have? And uh, OK, there was a slight debate about it. And technology in itself is neither good nor bad. And so for instance, Tiberius, who, uh, who actually uh, turn to the dark side of the force for the, the lack of a better word he would have used it to spy on his enemies and to become an even more effective killer than he uh, already was and uh, Antoninus Pius would have used it to better uh, the revenue of, uh, of his empire and the wealth of the people that it's just a tool so the tools themselves, they are neutral. Uh, it's what we do with it. And uh, there is uh, St. Augustine, uh, which you've uh, obviously heard of. The, uh, he was a bishop, as you probably know, and he has a number of sermons. And one of these sermons, uh, and I'm not quoting from memory, so don't sue me if it's not literally true, but uh, it, was, uh, it ended with, Bad times, terrible times. That's what we keep saying. But uh, we are the times. And if we are good, the times will be good. So it's actually uh, the appeal to, uh, uh, if, if also you quoted Fazari, but you know, one of the uh, most beautiful texts of uh, the Renaissance is um, a text written by a a genius who unfortunately died at age 23, Giovanni Pico della Mirandola. And he, he wrote a, uh, a, a uh, treaty called uh, Oration on the Dignity of Man. And in that uh, speech, God actually speaks to human beings, to Adam and Eve, actually. Says to Adam, uh, um, I've created this world with everything that is in there, uh, with the forests and the lakes and uh, the quasars and the black holes, and I've created literally everything. And everything in this universe has an exact place and obeys strict laws that I, God, have put in, in that creation. Only you, Adam, you are different. I've created you in such a way that you will have to find your own place and that you will have to make your own laws. And it will be up to you to rise above the angels or to sink below the lowest animal. And I thought, I thought that, that is a, that's actually what, what the human condition is all about. It's, we have been thrown into life without asking for it. We'll have to leave it for, presumably against our will. But in between, we write a story, and if we want the story to be positive, we need to leave the world in a, a better shape than we found. 
That's that's the task. And if a person finds what you guys call an atom or a spark or whatever, it's actually when a person realizes that, that uh, she or he can actually make a difference in this way, not only to be happy uh, as a person, him or herself, but actually to to write that story. Uh, it's, it's actually, uh, I've, I've written a few books. Well, actually, uh, leading a life is also like writing a book. And uh, when you go outside, you can do uh, whatever you want. It's just you who, who decides what is going to be in your book. The, the danger that our current society is in is, is quite dangerous, but we've, we've been in other moments in history when, when things went bad too. So there is no reason to think that with all the possibilities and technologies that we have, if we put our mind to it, um, we can make the world a paradise. The only thing is we, uh, we need to, to find a way to do so. And political philosophy thought that they had found the answer with parliamentary democracy. And what we've been discussing is that uh, we'll have to add a few other things uh, and being uh, uh, guaranteeing truthfulness in public discussions, I think, is, is an, an essential precondition for everything. And we're not doing a good job currently, but uh, it's never too late. You, you touched on a few really important points to our series, uh, Dirk, which, which is um, the human mind is a storytelling machine. We all know that stories were that's one thing we create that other animals don't okay um in this constant evolution of stories one thing is clear in the mythologies that have existed ramayana mahabharata iliad odyssey all the mythologies star wars harry potter is your happiness is not the end all be all it's it's you have a, a cross to to bear right that seems to be consistent across all the religious mythologies, all the Hollywood mythologies, all the, the, the poetry that has stood the test of time is, it's not about you, right? It's you have a cross to bear and you gotta, you gotta run that cross up the hill until there's some evolution of the truth, right? And, and, I, and I think that kind of really nicely sums up uh, the point of it all for, you know, why we're doing this series is to get people like you to constantly remind us that there's certain myths, there's certain people, there's certain personalities, there are certain stories that actually have, uh, are worth listening to because they say this, it, 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 it gives you the same lesson over and over again. Uh, there's this guy, uh, when I did my uh, executive MBA, which unfortunately, as I uh, confessed this centuries ago, we had to read a book that is still popular, uh, Covey's uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I don't exactly recall what these habits were because I'm not a highly effective person anyway. But what I do recall is the book starts with a kind of mental experiment. Uh, and the mental experiment is you have to imagine that you're dead. It's not difficult to do because it's it's going to be a, a matter of fact in, in from a historical perspective seconds from now it's going to be a fact so you're dead and you're uh, lying in state in uh, the crematorium or the church or whatever 
uh, it's customary to, to lie in state and people are talking about you. What you want those people to say about you, that's what you have to do in life. That's actually, uh, if, you, if you want to do something with your life, well, do those things that will cause other people to say, she was honest, she was gentle, she was this, she was that. Um, and true greatness, whether it's in science or in politics, uh, happens when people actually focus on that kind of purpose. Yeah. Um, I, I'd like to say something. You know, Akbar was great. Akbar certainly, Akbar the Great exists for a reason, but I've definitely seen in my life people who are great. They're not well known, but they are the great. You know, my mother would fall into that category. My deceased mother passed away in November. Now that I've had so many opportunities to talk to people who have, who knew my mother and they give me their eulogies after, everybody keeps saying she was the great, you know? So yeah. I, I love, I love the concept that you can do all these things. You know, you have your platform, you have your access to ideas and you have your open-mindedness that just creates greatness. You yeah. know, so and you can be that in any way, shape yeah. or form. You don't need to be powerful or wealthy or yeah, yeah. You can make a huge difference in people's uh, lives just by talking to them, by being there for them. Or, yeah. uh, and very often when you fondly remember a person uh, who has passed away, like you were referring to your mother, or I have a grandmother that I uh, worshipped, <laughs> what you remember about them was not their checkbook or... Uh, uh, you know, the car they drove or anything like that. It was actually what they told you or the effect that they made on your life, the uh, the wisdom that they had and how they showed you stuff or allowed you to do stuff that made you what you are. And it's it's actually true. If you if you think of your parents, yeah, they they are the only people who have known you throughout your life. For a large part, they have made you what you are. You, you've made yourself, but they have at least contributed a lot. And when they die, fortunately, they continue to live on in you. But unfortunately, with them, part of you has died as well. So every time a good person leaves the earth, the world impoverishes. And vice versa, each time a new person arises and creates something new, the world becomes more beautiful. Our task is to be of the latter kind. So, Dennis, do you like how we kind of tied it all back together to, to find uh, I, I always try yeah. to wrap it up for you. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about a lot of things because we touch both uh, historical figures, but as well a lot of things. And I think for people listening to us, um, I think especially in terms of some of the things, and now I'm going to quote you, uh, Dirk, I hope I do it in the best way possible, but there's a couple of things in your books that are wonderful. So about the paths to peace, religion, ethics, and tolerance in a globalizing world. You've been actually looking at uh, some kind of uh, absolute truths like black and white, left and right, believers and infidels, as in them, which you touch especially the, the believers and infidels. And the list is endless and should make it painful, obvious that the difference between people are inherently dangerous. So I think it's the dangerous for good and for bad. 
And, uh, and I think I like especially some of the ideas like difference divides, it breeds prejudice, fear and hatred, and sometimes it kills. So I think that could be a great way. And I think that's probably in the context of our context of finding your atom as a metaphor to finding what makes us humans is that I think the people that can unite, and I think you touched it as well, Amrita, can actually make a difference, both with the emotional union or both with ideas, narratives and storytelling. And I think that is kind of the, the most important thing right now is how we create these paths to peace that you mentioned, uh, Dirk, in terms of your book that I suggest for you to, to look to, for people listening to us to read. Um, and I think how we can actually especially look at these big figures uh, in history, um, but probably try to create a more narratives and storytelling. And I think I'm ready to, that's what you're doing with your films and production and me as well with technology and, and platforms is making sure that these narratives can be, it's not easy to be human, let's put it that way. Sometimes to please someone, we actually hurt another person. But I think it's these paths that actually make us special. That's what I would take out of this. And I'm very inspiring. So Dirk, probably I would like to have another one, probably me and Amrita will repeat it. Uh, yeah. To go probably more from one of the books or some of specific chapters, because there's a lot of ideas here. Well, I think what we should do is let's, um, Dennis, let's read Path to Peace. I've read two Dirk books. I have a third to go. Let's read Paths to Peace and do a episode or two about that book. Yeah. Very relevant topic. No, completely. More than ever. <laughs> I think I everything going quote, on. Uh, the, about difference, uh, it's, it's not maybe for your program, but it's an interesting piece of conversation anyway. Uh, if you look at difference between people uh, and you look at management, uh, very often large corporations try to define what the good employee is. You, so you have, for instance, J&J &J in my time had standards of leadership. And if you follow these standards of leadership and if you look at the definitions, you end up with Jesus Christ or Holy Mary with an MBA. So it's really a person. That, uh, <laughs> yeah. But an actual company is composed of very different characters. And true leaders actually embrace the fact that people are different. Uh, one of the guys that led J&J &J in my time, uh, the late Dr. Paul Janssen, who was probably one of the three to five smartest people on the face of the globe at, at that time, a, a true genius. He was respectful of everyone and listened to a blue-collar worker with as much attention as to a, a Nobel Prize winner. And his point was always that the difference between people is like the difference between fingers of a hand or the difference between musical instruments in an orchestra. He said, if we would only have thumbs or indexes or whatever, our hands would be much less effective than they are currently with the differences there are. And the, uh, the true task of a manager is to, is to conduct an orchestra to make sure that all these, these different people sound together and then you get a piece of music that is much more rich than if you only have trumpets or violins or whatever it is and that is what i believe uh, as well uh, the our world is is a beautiful place and that is precisely because it has been created by so many completely different individuals it's what makes uh, we would never ever no one alive would never ever have come to the civilization that we currently have. We stand on the shoulders of a great diversity of people. 
And it's our, our task is to inherit what they've done for us and to, to give something back to the generations that come after us. That's the human condition. Whoever created ice cream should be punished. No, probably. <laughs> yes. That's, that's my conclusion from all this. Yeah. No, this is wonderful. So thank you so much for, for this precious time. I'm actually taking yeah. a lot of notes here and actually thinking about, like you said, Dirk, is what makes these kind of benchmarks that makes us special. But as well, how we can actually cope with this, especially what you said, I think the, the minimalist, lazy narratives that create monster times in history. Yeah. Um, so I think for people listening to us, please, I would suggest for you to look at the books um, from from the emperor's writings, memories of Akbar the Great, to paths to peace, religion, ethics, and tolerance in a globalizing world, and uh, you can find, of course, the bio of uh, Derek Collier's here. Um, it will be behind actually where we have the podcast in YouTube, or if you're listening to us in other places. And we're going to put a lot of information as well to find information about the books and the links to Amazon and other places. Thank you so much, Derek. It's wonderful to have you here and very exciting and actually made me think about a lot of things as a CEO, as a person, and as a, a researcher and a writer as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you.